0: Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, episode 103.
1: Coaching is storytelling. It's, you know, relating to somebody else and putting a message in terms that they'll understand.
0: This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon. Today, we have Ali Kirshner with us. Ali was the strength and conditioning coach for the 2021 NCAA Champions Stanford University Women's Basketball Program. Ali also just took on a new position with Art of Coaching. So there's a lot to talk about. Ali, welcome.
1: Thanks for having me, Eric. I'm excited to be here.
0: It's great to have you on. When we got to talking about having you on the podcast, that was before the national championship. And then you just had the job change so this has been a very exciting year for you.
1: Well you know I think it's less of a big year and more of just like a big month but yeah it's been (laughs) it's been quite the whirlwind. I'm slowly coming back to earth. I uh, I did manage to get off the grid and go on an awesome vacation in Utah so I went from three weeks in a bubble where I didn't see the light of day to three days or four days of didn't see inside, which was a great transition. So I'm like back to, to neutral and excited to be on your podcast.
0: I think a lot of coaches in the field know who you are, but I want to give all our listeners who don't know you yet a chance to learn your path into the profession. Tell us about your experiences as an athlete and how that led into Strength and Conditioning.
1: Well, I will, I'll try to keep it concise. You know, I think that all of us have, um, have long winding paths, myself included, but I, I did, I started as an athlete. I played collegiate soccer at Duke. Um, I was, you know, I, I would say average at best, you know, I was um, uh, good enough to make it to the division one level, but I wasn't necessarily going to make soccer my career. And I was fortunate enough to be on an incredible team, but that also meant that I was behind an all American Uh, as a goalkeeper. There's only one of you that plays. So very quickly, I learned that where I was really um, passionate and also found the most success was in the weight room, you know, like a lot of people. And when you find success in a place, you tend to have fond memories of it. I had a great strength coach in college as well. That didn't hurt. So, you know, as I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with my life, I end up interning in the weight room at Duke, and that kind of leads to a internship, or sorry, that leads to a graduate assistant role at the University of Kansas. And I think the reason I got the job at Kansas is because I had done just a small stint at Sparta, which is the force company, because they're out of my hometown in Menlo Park, or Palo Alto. And, uh, you know, Kansas at the time had adopted this force play technology. They were looking for a coach who knew the technology and could also um, help implement it. So got my foot in the door with coach Hootie at the University of Kansas, did my graduate assistantship there, which extended into a full-time position with women's basketball, soccer, swimming, and women's golf. And then, you know, I, I was extremely fortunate that the Stanford women's basketball job came open. And having grown up in literally the shadows of the university, it was a, an opportunity I just could not pass up to be with a Hall of Fame coach, an incredible winning team, and to be back with my parents, you know, at um, a pretty young age. So I feel incredibly lucky to have done that. And then, yeah, like you alluded to, we we won the national championship this year. And I decided to, after that, take on a role with Art of Coaching. So (laughs) I've done a little bit of of a lot of different things.
0: I think it's really cool. A lot of us, when we started in this profession, we packed our bags and where we grew up wasn't always on the horizon. Coaches are always looking ahead and seeking that next opportunity, whether it be an internship or a full-time job it's great. You got to go back home and work at a program where growing up, you probably looked up to right in your backyard. Now you're a part of that program, winning a national championship. Allie, tell us about that national championship team and what made that season so special.
1: I don't even know where to start with that question, Eric. I mean, yeah, it's easy to kind of look back and be like, we were a great team and, and we sure were, but our, our head coach, Tara Vanderveer, she has a a good saying, which I now completely buy into, which is to be at the elite level and to win a national championship, which she's now done quite a few times. So I feel like she has some ability to say this, you need to be good. You need to be healthy and you need to be really lucky. And if you watched our final four, you know, that we got a good dose of that luck and, um, you know, I, I think that, sure, we were, we were healthy, which I am so happy about, and we were, we were very talented, but I, I think that one of the determining factors in our success this year was the adversity that we kind of battled early, early in the season when our county, Santa Clara County, decided to tell us that they were not going to allow indoor activity when every other university was back in person, indoors. So, you know, we started our season out on the tennis courts and then we made a decision because teams were starting to play games and still we couldn't get inside our arena to move to Las Vegas. So we were in Las Vegas for a period of time and then we just started playing all of our games on the road. We were not home until mid January. So, you know, at that point we had been on the road for 10 straight weeks. And when you think about that, in comparison to a three week bubble, our kids were just prepared for it. They were like, okay, this is nothing new. And so, yeah, it was really, really challenging in the moment, but uh, you know, I think that's one thing that we can all point to, to, to say that might've been the tipping point.
0: Wow. I I didn't know that. Talk about an experience that brings the team together early in the season. Allie, I, I have to ask you. Your Instagram account got pretty popular towards the beginning of the NCAA tournament. You made the world aware of some injustices going on between the men's tournament weight room and the women's tournament weight room. I pulled up your post again today and it had around 150,000 likes. The story was featured on Good Morning America and a number of the major news networks. When you shared that the small dumbbell rack and stack of exercise mats was all you and your team had to work with. The day before, I had just seen a post about how cool the men's tournament weight room was. So you, Sedona Prince, and others who let us know what was happening in the women's bubble, that really opened some eyes. I know a lot of people have reached out to you to talk about this. What was that experience like for you and your team?
1: You know, it, it's hindsight's 2020 and it, and it shades a very, you know, different picture now because, you know, we ended up winning a tournament, but I'll tell you in the moment, the, the feeling that I had more than anything was overwhelmed. Um, I initially posted it, you know, with the intention of just, like you said, drawing awareness, maybe striking up a conversation or at least bringing strength coaches together around a central issue. And I I say that with confidence because I had at the time, like less than a thousand followers. And I was like, okay, maybe my mom sees this or maybe a few friends see this. It'll be, you know, it'll it'll do what it does. Um, And then it obviously got picked up by some bigger accounts and the snowball effect. It really shows you the power of social media. And at the time I was like, oh man, I really just don't wanna be a distraction. We hadn't played a game yet. And mind you, I, the last thing I needed was for our athletes attention to be taken elsewhere for our coaches attention to be taken elsewhere. I, I mean, they were asking our head coach, you know, what are your thoughts on this? And I was like, and she's got so many other things to focus on. So it was like both a, something important that we needed to focus on and that I wanted to draw attention to. But at the same time, I was like, man, can we please just play a game, get the monkey off our back? Like, let's just start rolling here. And so Fortunately, we did, and we ended up playing really well, obviously, Um, and I'm really, really glad that it started the conversations that it did, and that, you know, myself and a few of the other strength coaches that were at the tournament got to kind of talk to the higher-level people at the NCAA and express our concern, but I think more than anything, Eric, I'm just happy that it, it showed... The disparity on so many different levels, right? Like the weight room was one small thing that, you know, obviously shed light on the testing procedures and the food and the amount of money being spent and all these different avenues. And so, yeah, the weight room you could argue was a small piece, but it ended up being a catalyst to bigger things.
0: Yeah, I mean it 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 truly did, and I think it it brought awareness to some bigger overarching themes that we talk about and that come up from time to time. But I think one of the, one of the things I was so happy about just after the fact was just seeing how the strength community came together around uh, your post and what other people were sharing and people sharing their stories that may be similar to that. And man, that's what it's all about. It's, it's, it's picking each other up in these times and uh it's something that you know we we care so deeply for our athletes for you know for for our institutions i mean even just in how you you answer that you didn't want to be the center of attention even calling something out that's so that's so obvious and it just speaks to us as always wanting to be helpful and taking our teams forward but still be in the background And it's just a very humble profession, but no, I I just personally want to thank you. I think it's great that you did share that message and, and, you know, we support you and in, in bringing that. And I think it just really shed a positive light on our field as a whole. And uh, yeah, I, I'm just really, really impressed by that. So thank you.
1: I, you know, I appreciate you saying that, Eric, I think the cool thing, like you alluded to was that the strength community really did rally together. And like, even within that tournament, you know, I was texting and and talking to within those next few days, you know, 10 to 15 of the other strength coaches that were there. And we were tasked with coming up with a list of things that we would want in a, a, you know, an immediate solution type of way, you know, like the NCAA literally came to us and said, Hey, we're trying to fix this. What can we do now? Whether or not that ended up happening is a Time, a discussion for a later time but you know immediately there was 10 of us in a text thread and we were coming up with you know kettlebells and barbells and med balls and what would we want you know like what do we actually need what's fair and then you know that led to us being able to present that to NCAA along with just asking for a seat at the table um and not in a cliche way but hey look we want to help this is us presenting a solution, but also this is a longer conversation. And the fact that there's no sports performance professional represented on any of these oversight committees, that's a complete miss because, you know, there's, a, there's medical professionals, there's, you know, operations professionals. So, you know, where's the sports performance one? And they, they accepted that and they admitted to the fact there wasn't one. And hopefully that's a giant step forward in terms of the NCAA seeing the strength and conditioning profession as a more legitimate body.
0: Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a great message and realization from it all. And it truly does take us forward because I think, I think we, we, we had a collective view on, on what happened and we may not be able to wipe out all of the bigger picture, uh, challenges and, and injustices that are out there all in one shot, but we can, we can chip away at it and, uh, keep this conversation going forward. So I'm really happy that we could, uh, talk about that a little bit, but I do want to ask you some coaching questions. I've been, um, I've been a fan of some of your, uh, other podcasts that you've done where you really talked about your onboarding into the profession and just, carving out your uh, coaching philosophy and, and your approach to working with athletes. Uh, speak to that a little a little bit. Uh, what's your process working with teams and athletes?
1: Yeah, you know, I was actually listening to your episode that you just released with Molly. And, you know, she's a, a really, really close friend of mine. And she, she actually said it perfectly. And, it's actually interesting the similarities of what we experienced coming into the profession. Both of us worked for extremely well-known females at the top of you know the strength and conditioning world. Um, you know, obviously her with Tina Murray and and me with Andrea Hootie. And it's hard when you're a young, moldable professional, male, female doesn't matter, to not see that mentor of yours as somebody you should replicate. And initially, you know, when I was at Kansas who who wouldn't want to replicate a Coach Hootie, right? I mean, she's incredible, incredible resource. She's done great things for this field and she's everything that you would want to be in a person. And so, you know, when I was thinking about my philosophy, it just was natural for me to try to emulate what she was doing. And I'll tell you very, very candidly, Eric, when I came out to Stanford and I was no longer under her immediately immediate umbrella or or tutelage, I was suddenly like, oh, wait, who am I? Like, who am I as a coach? What do I want my brand to be? And I had realized that I had sort of inauthentically just adopted her methods, but they weren't natural to me. Anybody that knows the two of us know that we are vastly different people and it's not a surprise to me that what worked for her didn't necessarily feel natural to me. And yet I was sort of just thinking that was what I had to do in order to be a known name in the profession and a respected professional. And I really had to sit back and examine what I'd been doing, why I'd been doing it, and then what, where I wanted to go with my own personal flavor, if you will. And uh, I really resonated with, more of an autonomy model and, and introducing more choice to the student athlete. And um, I started researching and picking that up as a, a philosophy much more towards the end of my uh, stint here at Stanford. And it really clicked with my personality and, and what I wanted to do and what I wanted to accomplish. And I could definitely talk more to that. But that's that's really where the, the change in my philosophy came from.
0: That- that's interesting. And it, it really connects with, you know, early in our careers, we were observing or we're interning and we know we're not coming in and, and setting the tone and, you know, and, and being in charge of the, of the training sessions. Uh, but that transition from uh, young coach to experienced coach or assistant to head coach. We don't talk about that a lot, and there's a lot of lessons in there. I remember a coaching theory class I was in in my undergrad, and uh, the coach who was teaching the class stood out to me. He said, hey, you know, number one thing in coaching, just be yourself. And I, I remember thinking, well, gosh, if it's that easy, like, they should be hiring me right now, you know, like, but there's a long road ahead. And it's not really what I wanted to hear at the time. I wanted a little bit more of, okay, what coaching processes and building your coaching philosophy and in theory and science, but coming back to that later, it's, I think it is good to reflect back on that. Who are we? You know, how do we communicate? What are the best ways that we can get a message out there and have it be received? those are really deep layers to kind of when you when you're peeling it back and you're thinking of who you are as a coach but i've really liked how you um how you speak to that because that's not something we always hear
1: yeah you know i think it's very obvious when you are trying to act in a way or coach in a way that is not natural or organic to your personality or the way that you best communicate, like you said, and athletes can see right through that peers, colleagues can see right through that. And so maybe you, you, especially for me, like I, I thought that I had to be this very demanding and audacious and, you know, um, just a more of a, a presence because that's what Hootie is and if you look at her personality it it matches right up so there's no gap there between what she was trying to do and who she was whereas for me I was trying to take that same you know approach to coaching and I'm you know I'm definitely more of a observer I'm more of a like let's talk to the athlete and at an individual level, try to figure out what they need, where they want to go, and then try to problem solve from there, you know, and, and not that those can't work, but when there's that mismatch, it feels like there's this, like, um, you know, in music, when there's just like that, um, uh, resonance frequency that, that doesn't quite match up. And then it, has this like ugly sound that's what it felt like it just like felt like something wasn't aligning and when I did finally find a coaching style of of which was bespoke and not something that you can just like pick out of the library but you know I was like oh okay this is what it's supposed to feel like and oh by the way now I'm getting more buy-in now I'm making more connections even though it's not the way that I've seen people build buy-in and have connections in the past
0: You mentioned, you know, growing autonomy within your, within your teams, giving, giving players choices, um, and basically putting them into the leadership process or the coaching process. There's a lot of benefits to that coaching style. Um, but how do you maintain high standards in your program with a coaching style that gives so much to the athletes? Have you ever thought about that?
1: Yeah, that's, a, that's such a great question. In fact, I think about it all the time. You know, one of the main reasons why I was averse to the idea of autonomy was because of that very thing. I was like, well, you know, if you give them too much choice, they're just going to run with it. Or if you give them too much choice, you know, how are they going to know what it's supposed to look like? It's going to be messy. It's going to like, if another coach walks in, they're going to be like, what, what is going on here, right? Like, and all of these, Insecurities started kind of bubbling up into the surface. And I was like, man, like, why why do I want to use autonomy? You know, like, it seems like it's hard to control. It's not necessarily something that you can draw a line between A and B and say, yep, that caused that. Right. And, And all of these things. And I kept coming back to what is my purpose in coaching? Is it my number one purpose? Let's just say that. Is it to make them stronger and faster? Is it to get them to like the weight room, or is it to get them to be empowered to make decisions about their own uh, health, wellness, and learn skills that are gonna serve them beyond the weight room? And I'm not saying there's one right answer to that, but for me, I wanted them to learn. I wanted the weight room to be a learning environment. And so I had to think about the risk reward payoff there. And the risk was that it was gonna look a little messy. It was not gonna be clean there was going to be a little bit of wiggle room for the athlete where they might not adhere to all the same standards, but the payoff if it works is that they learn something about themselves is that they develop skills that are going to serve them way beyond the weight room. So yeah, like, like anything, Eric, I think there is that risk and that's why education on the front end is super important and laying a super solid foundation is essential. If you're going to use autonomy, I think, I thought of autonomy as, you know, like you walk into the weight room day one and you throw your programs up in the area and you say, all right, pick whatever you want. But in reality, the way to implement autonomy in the weight room, at least in my experience, needs to have a lot of structure up front, a lot of education up front. And that kind of, it, it kind of prevents a little bit of what you were uh, alluding to.
0: Yeah. I, I always like to think of it like, you know, you're giving choices, but it's strategic choices and, uh, not giving them a ton of options where that lead them to failure, but giving, you know, and building and empowering them to make the right choices, uh, for that situation. And I think another layer to it is, you know, these aren't black and white training situations that we're in anymore. If you look at training theory of, just our growth and how we think about linear periodization to undulating. And now these flexible training models, everything's getting more flexible. And as coaches, our coaching style needs to adapt to that as well, because the reason, you know, the reason why have we, why have we adopted these training, training models? It's because there was a need for more flexibility and so we as professionals need to adopt that as well. So I think that's well. Really and awesome. Eric,
1: I mean, like I, as I talked about earlier, we were on the road for ten weeks straight. If I had used my old programming style of, you know, like these like really crisp workout cards that look super nice and they're everything is you know based on a, a super scientific yearly pro, yearly program and you know everything's periodized to the t. I honestly don't know what we would have done because, you know, there were points in the season where we were as a team sharing four kettlebells and a medicine ball. There were times where we were in hotel weight rooms. There were times when we were outside on fields. There were times that during practice, they, half the team got to me and we did step-ups on the bleachers in a high school gym. It, It was just like, had I? not given them choice, had I not empowered them on the front end to have some autonomy and have some leeway, I personally would have really had a hard time dealing with this year and all of the nuance and gray area and change that occurred. And so I'm just like, so thankful that I had adopted this prior to, so that we were able to utilize it during all of this period of uncertainty.
0: So this topic, it makes me think of Coaching archetypes and uh, you know, previous guests that we've had on the podcast a couple of times, Brett Bartholomew, who uh who you work with now at Art of Coaching. New job. What are you uh what are you most excited about?
1: You know, Art of Coaching has always it's always been featured prominently in, in a lot of things I do and I've always really respected Brett and the stuff that he puts out and the content that he creates. There there wasn't necessarily as much focus on this early in my career because like many young strength coaches, it's not sexy. it's, It's hard to grasp. And oh, by the way, when all your friends are going to these fun, you know, Olympic lifting conferences and learning the newest sports science techniques, you know, those are objectively more interesting to look at, you know, and, and, and they're fun to have, you know, it's fun to have more credentials behind your name and on all these things. And, you know, and then I started in my own life, looking at what was actually moving the needle. And it wasn't the programs I was writing, because I, I knew that I was no master programmer. But when I bought into the athletes, and I, you know, used the archetype model, and I understood power dynamics, and I utilized influence tactics and all the things that Brett teaches along the way, which are by the way, super practical. And that's very rare in this space. You know, I think a lot of communication workshops and a lot of communication talks are the seven C's of communication and the five M's of motivation. And those are nice PowerPoints to look at, but I have no clue how to actually implement that. So when I I saw a combination of skills and tools that were pertaining to the intra and interpersonal side of coaching. And Oh, by the way, here's how you do it. I was sold. I was like, this is absolutely the missing link in our profession. And I started, you know, obviously working with Brett a little bit on the side. He's a great friend of mine. And, you know, we got into talks and he was like, why don't you come do this full time? And it was at the point where I was ready for a new challenge. I was ready for to make what I was already thinking about and doing with 90% of my day, my full-time. I was like, this is it for me. This is really where I'm nerding out. This is what is interesting to me. And oh, by the way, I can actually coach coaches. So I'm still coaching. It was just the perfect fit. And I'm super excited for my new role as an entrepreneur and, uh, working at a small company is super exciting too. And
0: that's awesome. You know, I tune in a lot to Brett's content out there and the art of coaching uh, material that he shared at some of our conferences and other events. And one thing I really like is that he's not afraid to take things from other disciplines or other fields and relate it to who he knows, the coaching audience, and, and just the process that he's gone through. Um, and I think a lot of coaches connect with that for you you know what are those areas what are the other areas that you've been exposed to that maybe led you down this uh, inquisitive path towards really just expanding your view of what coaching can be
1: well both brett and my own family have always you know um reminded me of the importance of like you said lateral thinking but also divergent thinking which i think are pretty synonymous in this context and I I'll tell you, to be honest with you, I have actually a podcast about this, um, called ride the gray, which is about lateral thinking. And so obviously Brett and I love to like actually dive deep on this stuff, but it's true when I am talking to somebody from a different profession or learning about a concept that's actually very far from strength and conditioning, um, from the outside perspective, right? Like I've really, you know, I kind of, dove into the lean startup model. And I dove into behavioral economics and um, how the stock market works. And and it's interesting because you learn little things, or at least they reframe concepts that you know about inherently, or that pertain to your profession, but they talk about them in a completely different way. And when that is the case, it's like when your parent tells you something versus when you're, cool uncle tells you something, it's packaged slightly differently. And for whatever reason, it tends to stick. And I found that time and time again, I was like, there's gotta be something to this, this idea of taking ideas from elsewhere that that aren't that different. They're just, like I said, packaged differently and inserting them back into your own life. It, it has made all the difference. And, um, I, I really am just excited to, to keep exploring those other realms
0: in this role, I, I say this a lot, you know, coaches are more than, than weight room attendance. You know, coaches have a lot of skills that extend beyond whatever's written on the sheet for the athletes that day. And it extends to leadership opportunities at their institutions. But I think one of the real great takeaways is that in coaching, we don't need to start and create from scratch. There's a lot of other professions and fields out there, who have a head start on a number of areas. And if we can pull in some of that content, we see that a lot in the business world, Um, working on sports science right now. Well, there's a lot of great content out there right now in the business analytics side of things. And you can't help but think that our uh, advancements in sports science and who's getting involved with that are, are also connected with the business analytics side of things that because statistically it's it's very similar and so there are a lot of connections there and just the processes and there's so much we can we can learn um you know a quick story just made me think of what we were talking it was you know i was in professional baseball in uh in triple and we were in nashville and just being kind of a country music fan i connected with an old college buddy who was a studio drummer uh, just for a few artists. And he, uh, you know, he just had some different touring opportunities. And to me, this is so cool. Like what he is doing. I was just like, wow, I'm asking him a million questions about, you know, what he's got coming up and all these things. And it's funny. Cause he's, he was a diehard baseball fan and he's asking me about what I do. And what I realized is that we had a very similar path and that we had professions that took us all over the country uh, challenges. It took us away from our family at times. We had a lot to talk about. There was so much relatability between completely separate industries. And it's funny when we talk now, it goes back to that conversation um, because there's about a 20 year gap from the time before that we had, we had connected, but it, it, it just was a really cool thing. And when I think of relatability across professions, you know, we're all humans, we all have emotions and feelings and thoughts, and we have different things that motivate us. But there's a lot of things that connect us too. So I I think that's really great.
1: Uh, You know, it's a a great story. And it actually made me think, you know, I think we we often talk as a profession about Taking other ideas from other professions and using them in our own, but how about vice versa? I think we're still obviously um, underappreciated or under misunderstood in the larger business and and you know uh, on the scheme of all the other professions in terms of the value that we provide. And you know, I was I was listening to one episode of Brett's podcast before I came on where he interviewed somebody who's a screenwriter and a storyteller professionally. And the guy was like, Yeah, I was kind of interested that you wanted to reach out to me and have me on your podcast. And Brett was, you know, like, well, coaches and storytellers have a lot in common. And I think there's a lot that we can each learn from each other. Coaching is storytelling, it's, you know, relating to somebody else and putting a message in terms that they'll understand. And I think that I'm excited for the future of using lateral thinking in my own life, but then also helping other people understand how coaching, especially sport performance can help them in their life, right? Like leader leadership and coaching are, are synonymous. I mean, like coaching can be used in any realm and it doesn't need to be exclusive to sport. And so I'm excited to, to keep pushing that message toward the, the greater professional sphere
0: we talked a little bit about uh, your path into the profession and just the process of figuring out your coaching philosophy. And now it's expanded to just this broad look, a you know, high level view of what our field can be and represent and, and where all that information can come from. For, for young coaches listening, you know, how do you take on such a such a wide ranging curriculum? You know, they already have strength and conditioning content they want to learn, programming, working with athletes. Uh, when should young coaches key in on this type of information, and uh, what's a great approach to just soaking it in from from the more interpersonal and interpersonal perspective?
1: I would I would challenge the current model. I think that myself, as I, as I talked about earlier, and I think this is something that's shared by many young coaches. We are taught that the X's and O's and the programming and the sports science and the day-to-day minutia of what we do is what's going to get you the job. And I think to a certain extent, that's true. Like you have to have a baseline understanding of the scientific and foundational principles of, of coaching and strength and conditioning. But I would push back against the idea that that's going to be the thing that sets you over the edge. It's truly all of the periphery. It's the intra interpersonal, it's the communication, it's knowing how to negotiate, it's knowing how to build your resume and and all of these things we don't learn until we need them. We learn them in almost like um, it's not a proactive approach, it's a reactive approach. And so, yes, while it's not always the how do I want to say it's not always the the sexiest, uh, you know, go back to that term um, thing to start with. I think that without the intra and the interpersonal being a foundation, I, I think it should be switched. I think those need to be the foundation of strength and conditioning, learning and growing. And then you layer in the programming because the programming is like the cherry on top. Once you know how to relate to people, once you know how to get them to buy into a program, once you know how to identify what their needs are, relate to them and then provide what they need, it really doesn't matter what you give them. I mean, we've seen that and we've talked about it time and time again, but you know, it's nice to talk about. It's another thing to do it. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's what I'm really excited about with Art of Coaching is the ability to help shape that side of things where, you know, young coaches, young coaches really do need this in their initial training. And, um, we can, we can help provide that to them.
0: You alluded to experience with technology, uh, early in the podcast and, uh, how that kind of gave you some opportunities early on, and then you've progressed more into the psychosocial, and interpersonal, intrapersonal uh, path of coaching, what does the future of our field look like you know, in terms of coaching skills? You know, what are we going to see in the next five to 10 years?
1: Oh man, that's a, you're asking me to pull out my crystal ball, huh? Okay. So, you know, it, I think we're seeing two things happen simultaneously. We're seeing the automation and the AI you know, a wave start to hit, you know, I live in the Silicon Valley, so I I can see it coming from a mile away. And um, the technology is obviously growing and growing and growing, and it's super important. It's going to be extremely useful. These are all tools, right, in our toolbox. So I think what's going to be important is that people understand that these are tools and that they are meant to be situationally fit to help the coach right um just the same way that different programming methods are tools the same way that communication is a tool that can you know help you be a better coach and and deliver information to the people that you're you're leading so i think that with the onset of more complicated not complicated but more um just let's, I don't even know the word for it, just more technology and more information, there's going to be a need for the ability to relate it to the people you serve um, in, in a, a more digestible manner. So I think communication and all these soft skills, if you will, are going to become more and more important as some of the other more technologically advanced concepts start becoming more popularized so that you can close that gap and, and deliver to the athlete what they need.
0: And, and an interesting layer, there's the processing it's, you need to possess those soft skills to be able to deliver it to the athlete, but you also need to be able to, uh, you know, I mean, you know how these coaching roles are, you're a lot of times doing the data collection or, or setting up the equipment. And so basically pulling the highly analytical complex data or information and, and then bringing it to the athlete in the most productive way. So technology impacting our coaching processes, uh, as technology advance, our coaching, our coaching process evolves.
1: It, it, what you just said, um, was summarized it beautifully. And I think it, my dad's an engineer and he talks all the time about how the best engineers are the ones that have great speaking and oration skills as well, because, what they do is so technical and not understood a lot of times by management. And so the ones that are able to break it down, communicate it effectively, are the ones that end up getting advanced in their career because otherwise nobody knows what they're doing. So I think that coaching is the same way. It's both a, an inherent better understanding of what you're doing, but then ability to relate it to coaches and to athletes to get them to understand why you're using it and how it's going to help them. Because again, you know, all these coaches and I have direct experience with it. They think these tools are great, but until they understand how they can help your program, they're not going to buy into it. And if you don't have buy-in from your head coach, well, you're, you're spending a lot of money on a really fancy looking, you know, sports bra or sensor that doesn't do a whole lot to move your program forward.
0: It's uh. (laughs) you you bring up so many great points It, it made me think you know COVID this past year we've been on all these zoom calls and uh and you know we're in a public speaking profession we are communicators we're always in front of a group and uh now we have a lot of opportunities with with being on in meetings and on zoom to uh practice those public speaking skills but I think of it as really a call to action coming from kind of our conversation today for, for coaches that we do have a voice and we have a lot to offer and um, get over those fears of sharing uh, and, and find a platform to do it, you know, reach out to the NSCA, reach out to different podcasts that are out there and make those connections so that you have an opportunity to be a part of the solution going forward. And, like you said, communication skills are not just for coaches. It, it connects with, with every profession. You know, we hear about this in medicine all the time with the need for, you know, bedside manner with physicians. And so um, I think it's, it's something that's universal to, to everyone and, you know, definitely just a good call to action for coaches to be on the proactive side of solutions for our field.
1: Well, and and the pro and proactive in this situation means actually practicing it. And communication is one of those things, just like um, you know, driving where you you do it so often that you don't feel like you need to actively get better at it necessarily. You're like, yeah, I just do it every day and that's how I that's how I train it. But you wouldn't do the same thing with a a new a movement in the weight room. You wouldn't just throw it on your sheet without having, you know researched it and looked at it and then actually tried it and and figured out where you're, you know, not good and where you have gaps. And um, I, I think, like you said, um, you know, it's important to get over the fear and, and start doing it. But we also need to create safe places to practice communication where you can fail and then get evaluated as well. Because Uh, I I don't know, right now, those aren't in abundance. And, you know, that's another thing that, you know, hopefully, um, we'll start to see more of.
0: Yeah, being more welcoming to new voices as a profession, uh, being more welcoming in general as a profession to uh, onboarding new young coaches in a way that takes us forward and grows the number of positive voices we have. I think there's There's a lot there. I I can talk about this stuff all day, Allie. I I really enjoy um, connecting on this. I wanna give you the opportunity. um, I think we've already mentioned your Instagram page. What's the best way for uh, listeners to get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, I I think um, Instagram is definitely where I'm most active. I'm a very visual person, so uh, I appreciate all the pictures. But uh, Kirshner.Allie is my Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Ali Kirshner. And then, um, yeah, I mean, also ride the gray is another place you can, you can find me, but besides that I'll, uh, I'll probably be on art of coaching a little bit more as well. So all of those, um, those platforms are a good place to reach me and I will try to get back to everybody.
0: That's great. Thanks for being with us and to our listeners. We appreciate you tuning in also a special thanks to Sorenex exercise equipment. We appreciate their support. From the NSCA, thank you for listening to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. We serve you, the coaching community, so follow, subscribe, and download for future episodes. We look forward to connecting with you again soon and hope you'll join us at an upcoming NSCA event or in one of our special interest groups. For more information, go to NSCA.com. This was the NSCA's Coaching Podcast.